The Big 5D Podcast is brought to you by Matchcraft, a global MarTech firm powering local search, social, and display campaigns for partners on six continents. Matchcraft's newest offering is Powered By, an API solution giving third-party platforms access to the technology behind its flagship Advantage platform. Visit them at matchcraft.com. Hello, and welcome to episode 23 of the Big 5D Podcast. I'm your host, Charles Laughlin. We're all about talking to the companies that are making it happen in the small and local tech ecosystem in Africa and the Middle East. Today's guest is Tariq Sheikh. He's founder and CEO of PostPay. PostPay was formed in 2019, and it launched its Buy Now, Pay Later product in 2020. Around the same time, a bunch of other companies did the same thing in the Gulf region, mainly in the UAE and Saudi. Now, MENA is a highly competitive market and kind of a reflection of the global buy now, pay later market, which is, of course, all over the news and hyper competitive and attracting big dollar M&A. The greatest example of this was Square's acquisition of Afterpay for $29 billion. And we just saw PayPal acquire a company called Payday in Japan for about $3 billion. As a quick aside, Afterpay is an investor in Postpay. We've also seen many smaller regional acquisitions. For example, Zipco, an Australian company, recently acquired the remaining shares in Payflex after making an investment earlier. And it acquired Spotty, a UAE buy now pay later platform that is, continues to operate under the Spotty brand. So there's a lot going on in this space, and we really wanted to get somebody on the podcast to tell us all about it. So Tariq was kind enough to come on and answer all our questions about how the business works, some of the challenges it's facing, the competitive environment, and so on. So we really hope you enjoy the podcast. Tariq, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Thanks, Charles, for having me. Great. So your company, uh, PostPay, is operating in uh, UAE, Dubai. We'll get into a lot about what your company does. It's in the buy now, pay later space, obviously, which is a very active space. Lots to discuss there right now. But let's go back to the beginning a little bit. And tell us a little bit about your, just a little bit about your background and what led you to uh, this industry, which seemed to have come out of nowhere in, uh, in, in <laughs> at least in the Middle East over the last few years. Yeah, I mean, it really has come out of uh, come out of nowhere globally. I would, I would, I would say. Um, so, I used to be. Well, I'm not going to go all the way back, uh, right to the beginning, but start off in my uh, my entry into the Middle East, which was uh, several years ago. Uh, I actually moved here with a consulting firm. I used to be a strategy consultant and uh, I moved into the Middle East, worked in both public and private uh, sectors, various number of projects, mainly in the UAE and Saudi Arabia uh, and a number of other countries here. I started obviously to really immerse myself in the culture, immerse myself in the region. Um, But over a period of time in consulting, I started to hit a plateau. The learning curve uh, tapers out you start repeating things. And, and it was one of my, um, my intentions uh, during my MBA. I, I, did a, I did an exchange in Spain uh, at Esade, which was a, a wise choice. It's a great city in Barcelona. And uh, yeah, yeah it's, a, it's a great place. And um, I, I, I was connected to a community um, of, of uh, essentially it's a, it's a mid-market private equity uh, instrument called a search fund. And so I ended up deciding that, you know, and I'm going to pull the plug on consulting and I'm going to do something a little bit more bold. Um, I'm going to move from strategy and operations and put a hat on as a fundraiser. 
and, and I'm going to open up this door, something that I always wanted to do. So I actually moved um, uh, focus, not only from the Middle East, uh, but also to, you know, North Africa, East Africa, and even South Africa, you know, really from a high level view to understand where I could operate. And I started honing into a specific region, which was East Africa. So I, I actually started in a totally different region, working on something totally different. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because you have so many entrepreneurs who start out and there's a fine line between uh, perseverance uh, in, in, the right, in, in the wrong direction and pivoting, right? You know, you, right, yeah. You need to know when, <laughs> when it's not working and when it's not When going. it's not working, yeah. exactly. And so, you know, transitioning through this role, uh, this, new, new, this new hat that I I'd put on and, you know, practically I was looking for investors globally um, from all different types of channels, uh, sending emails, calling them out. It was in retrospect or in hindsight, quite a bold thing to do. And I mean, I had to wear, I had to wear my heart and soul uh, around, <laughs> around an armor because there was a lot, it's, it puts a, it, you put a, you put yourself on the line, you really put yourself on the line. And uh, I reached out to investors globally uh, for a search fund that was going to own and operate um, private companies uh, and consolidate an industry in East Africa. I started building some really strong relationships with uh, with investors, and it was an incredible experience because these are people who are who have the finger on the pulse. They know what's happening in multiple market markets, and it's you know we can I can read the Financial Times every day, or or look at, watch the news, or listen to podcasts, right? And often, uh, you know, more often than not, we miss a lot of what's happening next. It's always what's in the present, right. and. And these types of investors, I've obviously got a huge respect for them because they are in the know. They know and they have a sense of what's happening. So I start, started having a conversation, uh, deeper conversations with investors. And one of the investors had just invested in Afterpay. And they were obviously talking about the huge success of this business in Australia. Um, and I started looking at this model uh, and the applicability of this model in the Middle East and Africa. So this is a wider zone of where to play. And it became pretty obvious to me that it was the, it was an industry on the cusp of drastic growth. Um, I know many people say this, and I'm sure I've said this before about other industries that didn't, didn't grow, uh, but it was really that feeling that this hasn't happened yet in the Middle East, but it, you know, we were totally you have blind. Called it right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And, and it was it was not it was not easy. I mean, you know, we started off. Um, so it was that that very point where I decided to pivot. That was the major pivot. So pivot away from the mid market, which we had almost closed the full fund, um, and move to a startup in tech, which uh, you know I had very little experience in in tech in tech uh, as much as you know I would want to. And it was where that's when I found uh, when I was introduced to my co-founder Danny. Uh, Danny Molina, who was the founding CTO of one of the first buy now pay later players in Spain, Aplazame. And so, you know, uh, that was, I'm extremely grateful to have met Danny at the right place at the right time when we were going through our seed funding. And together we sat down in a co-working space and started building this, uh, this buy now pay later. You know, the first Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I, I guess uh, jumping ahead, I was wondering why you it, it was UAE simply because 
that's where you're based or did you see that as a unique opportunity? I mean, in true ex-consultant style, I did a hardcore analysis. I would hope. <laughs> it was a huge, <laughs> a huge model, you know, based on, I think it was 15 dimensions that we assessed. Okay. When I say we, I assessed these countries and looked at everything from GDP per capita, mobile phone penetration, credit card, debit card penetration, um, and also just you know, straight out, what's the e-commerce, uh, what's the e-commerce market size and what's the retail market size in these countries. Um, and then also a little bit on the risk towards the, to, towards the latter part of the, the, the analysis. But it was, it was quite clear that, you know, while Africa is, is, is always close to a lot of our hearts mm-hmm. and it's a, it's a continent that has a lot of opportunity for growth for e-commerce and for buy now, pay later, the Middle East was really where it was going to happen next. Uh, and for a couple of reasons, the, the e-commerce market um, was grow- it was booming already. Uh, it was large. So the e-commerce market in the UAE was several times larger than South Africa, which, is, which was the largest in Africa. Um, obviously, I didn't look to the US because we had, there were so many players there already. Europe had a number of players. Australia had existing players. And I had no real connection to, you know, the uh, uh, Singapore, Indonesia, Malaysia, and Latin America is, is quite far out. Uh, f- from my perspective, I was based in the Middle East. Right. And the UAE, why the UAE as opposed to Saudi Arabia or any of the other countries here? Well, the UAE, for, from a risk perspective, was for us the best place to test the model, to really test the model in the initial period. Because uh, we had a hypothesis at the time that due to the nature of this, the average order values of our product, and we can get all technical a bit later, but our hypothesis was that it was just too low an average order value for people to default on. Um, and, uh, and that's essentially why we started off in the UAE and now we've grown across the region. Okay. So, yeah, there are some... some um under the hood business model issues I want to get into in a little bit, but sure. um, just just a level set uh, on the where your business is today. And we'll get into the afterpay investment as well uh, shortly. But um, where are you where you're operating today? And are there any sort of market launches you know underway that you can talk about kind of just your geographic footprint right now? So uh, today we are 100 percent live operational in the UAE. We've really pushed very strongly in the in the in the UAE. Mm-hmm. Um, Saudi Arabia is next, um, followed by Kuwait, Qatar, Bahrain. But really, the geographies that we want to play from I, again, it's it's you know, and and you mentioned the investment from Afterpay. It's a lot of the the areas or the zone that we consider uh, postpay territory is where we would like to operate is anywhere from Turkey to South Africa and from Morocco to Malaysia, uh, Indonesia. We have a Sharia compliant product. It resonates strongly in this part of the world in the right. T axis that I that I highlighted, and so we see a strong fit. Uh, obviously, it's in applicable regions because not all of these markets have the right uh, uh, that are sizable enough to justify investment. Right. Okay. So you actually it should have been right in front of me. I think it was 2019 you launched, or is it 2020? I know that was right around there. Um, Established 2019 April the company. And, and- um, launched in 2020 yeah okay i think that so what's interesting is that right at that time roughly uh yeah. more than one <laughs> uh yeah. buy now pay later emerged sort of i don't know if everyone had the same idea at once or other people were saying I, i'm not sure why but it was like this 
several companies, you know, Tamara, there's uh, Spotty, which is acquired and, you know, a few others yourselves. Um, so what do you think was, what, what is it about that time and, and that that opportunity seemed to gel in so many places? Why were you expecting that for one thing? And why do you think it happened? It's interesting. I mean, initially there was, there was absolutely no player in the Middle East and I'd found some a player that had had on their website, this is before I actually set up the company, uh, buy now, pay later, but they were not actually operational. So <laughs> I thought that was going to be a competitor initially. And I ended up getting connected to through a friend um, because of the search fund, uh, uh, Wolf, who was at Harvard, and he connected me to someone who, uh, who, who was in part of his class. And he was a founder of a buy now, pay later in the UAE as well. And this was, you know, just after we had closed our pre-seed. So it happened very quickly. Um, we were all in the know. I guess I knew that there were uh, at least two other players relatively soon, about two to three months later. Uh, we had started making some noise in the market, but then decided to focus on product launch, product growth. Your question around why this moment in time? I guess it's driven by the market, right? It's um, clear that it was a success. It was a big, big success in the US and in, in Australia and in Europe. And the Middle East often emulates, I would say, what happens in the West. Um, sometimes better is it, uh, improves it and applies it locally. So this is essentially what happened. So you, you know, we go back a couple of years to Kareem and Uber in the Middle East. It's a very similar style model, but we needed it here. There was a, there was a strong demand. So let's talk about um, what it is, the, what sort of the beauty of the BNPL model and why it's resonating. So there's a lot that's been written about this, but I'd like to hear your perspective on so why this model resonates so strongly. And I know you mentioned it's Sharia compliance, so it has a sort of a unique appeal to, um, to you know, Muslim countries. But obviously, it's big everywhere, and it, the, the, the common denominator seems to be generational. One common denominator. So, just Absolutely. talk about what you think. Why you think this is just uh, caught on the way it has? I think you mentioned the major point, right? While I wouldn't say that's only ge the generational factor, because if I if I look at the the users that we have, you know, a large proportion are millennials, Gen Z. But right. we still have, you know, 30, 30 percent, 25 percent who right. are not who are still using it and avid users. Um, when we talk about Gen Z and millennials, you know, this is a population that grew up through a financial crisis, uh, 2007, 2008. A lot of uncertainty. It wasn't as easy. And I'm a millennial, albeit uh, on the other side. I'm not sure. <laughs> I sort of just cut it into being a millennial, but I grew up in the millennial, uh, you know, really as a millennial. Right. And there was a lot of uncertainty in the job market. There was a lot of uncertainty in the banking industry and in the financial service sector. Uh, personally, you know, there was a lot, uh, th it's, there was a genera generational shift away from banking uh, and the financial sector. It was a, almost like a veil was, uh, was lifted on the complexity or, or, you know, I, I want to be politically correct here, <laughs> but the mess that was uh, that had that had become in in the financial services sector, mm -hmm. the lack of transparency, the APRs, the you know revolving uh, the, the revolvers in the industry, 
And so this generation tends to steer away. It's, it's, a, it's a generation that steers away from using credit cards that, that uses typical financial products or traditional financial products and prefers to use either cash and just pay for what they have, um, like the two or three generations before, and or use buy now, pay later, where it's very clear, you know, this is what I'm doing. This is how much it's going to cost. Um, so there's a lot of transparency, but also the, the, the fact of instant gratification, right? So this generation want, you know, a couple of things. One, they want things now. And two, they want things that are free. <laughs> um, and this is it. So, you know, if you, if you, sorry. No, no, I just, the free part is, yeah, you see that. I mean, I try to sell content and, and no one wants to pay for content, right? So, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it is it is interesting because yeah. the consumers want things that are free and mm -hmm. the way, you know, marketing is totally shifted uh, the way, uh, you know, you know, brought value to influencers who get paid for marketing, etc, etc. Mm -hmm. uh, I would say it's also changed the, the, the overall structure of the market. And in the same way, in an even larger way, um, you know, you had the affirm style model, I call it that it existed for a while, you know? Uh, this is a model that did phenomenally well with a specific average order value. Uh, it was specifically over a certain amount. It was interest bearing. It was compl complex to, to a certain extent. It was still a lot easier to understand than a, than a banking, uh, you know, loan. But it was, it was, there was an APR attached uh, and not all customers want to start engaging with APRs. Not a, hardly, any customers understand what APR stands for in the first right. place, right, right? Right. So the moment we start talking about interest rates, uh, it becomes very complex. What Afterpay did is they turned the model on their head, on its head, and I believe that that's when it started to really boom, right? And I'm not just saying this because we haven't <laughs> we, we're affiliated with them. But, but to be clear, that model is it's purely it's purely free. It's no credit checks. It's 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 um... You well, know. it's beyond the credit checks or not. It's more about where where does the value where do you bring value in from the from the market? Are you getting it from the consumer? Right. Or what they did is they shifted those those costs from the consumer and shifted it over to the retailer. And it's mm -hmm. very much what we do, right? So we work with retailers with their customers to offer free buy now pay later installments. There's absolutely no cost for the customers. And in return, the retailers get a huge amount of value. You know, we've seen um, tremendous value uh, in conversion rates, so increases in conversion rates, uh, increases in average order values, and and it's you know it, it's it's a really strong top line uh, impact on the retailer, which is justified. Uh, it really justifies paying two, maybe three percent on top of their normal payment uh, fee. Yeah, so that's actually a good segue into some competitive questions I have about the business. I, I want to get into kind of what the KPIs are, but what you just said was, you know, getting the money from the, the merch at the retailer, yeah. which is, you know, kind of how people perceive this model working, though I know there are different models. Some are, sure. some charge interest, some don't, some charge fees to the consumer. But, mm -hmm. um, but I'm wondering if as this competitive situation evolves it the way it is, if there's going to be pressure because the, 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 the differentiator is getting those retailer relationships, right? Is that going to create pressure to give the retailers 
uh, are the retailers in a strong position to negotiate, I guess, with buy now, pay laters now so that so, they can uh, create, you know, yeah. you know what I'm asking you. And, and does that put some pressure on that model? So it's let's let's talk about and, and, and I'm going to answer the question. Uh, I'm going to phrase the question as differentiation and how do how do how do buy now pay later players differentiate in a market that becomes increasingly competitive? Mm -hmm. um, and for me, there are two major buckets. The first one is constructive differentiation, and the second is destructive uh, differentiation. Okay. And I think we know where the second, the latter is going. Okay, but, but let's hear it. <laughs> yeah, well, we'll talk about constructive differentiation. You know, one of the things that we do, and I'm not specifically talking about Postpay um, only, it's, you know, whether it's Afterpay, Klarna, Sezzle, Split It, whoever it is, um, user experience is one of the key differentiators, right? H how you enable user experience. And it's everything from the first point a customer sees you as a buy now pay later all the way to the end uh, when they've finished right when a customer has paid not paid etc etc it's a long journey and a lot of buy now pay later players uh, confuse it right with uh, ux only online and ux uh, and then pass it off to third-party collectors etc etc so user experience is really important and it leads to higher conversion in many ways the first is obviously less number of clicks less number of forms less number of Whatever we can cut out, which you know, which is the power of of being uh, a fintech, if you want, uh, you know, for whatever that term uh, covers, we have an agility and and a, and a, that adaptability to the market that the traditional financial services sector just does not, um, for many reasons. Mm -hmm. But that's a subject for another day, and we're able to do that. So that's the first one, and that's the conversion. And the second is bringing back customers right so it's bringing our own customer base to the retailer it's uh, ensuring that we're able to bring value so that's also in the in the overall customer experience are you uh, providing a customer experience that's seamless that is uh, that customers would want to come back and then use you so mm -hmm. so that's the first one the second is obviously product and and uh, product differentiation so i mentioned the firm afterpay model there are use cases for both Right. So you have some entrants to the market that come in and say, look, I've played it a little late. Um, I'm going to go for a niche. I'm going to go for a niche in the longer term installment bearing product, because I believe that this is important for, I don't know, furniture companies or for Peloton or <laughs> Peloton style uh, bikes. Right. And then the third is obviously specific vertical niche. So we see in the U.S. Um, companies like Sezzle that's that, that focused on SMEs. They were really, really focused on SMEs. Others are focused on B2B. Uh, you get fly now, pay later, education. Right. So there are a lot of different differentiators. That's constructive in the way that you're not, you know, uh, destroying the market. You're going in and finding a niche, lucrative niches. I mean, in the, in the Middle East, in the UAE, uh, school, uh, school, the schooling system is, you know, a billion dollar business. It's huge. Uh, it's a couple of billion dollars per, per annum. So there, there are a lot, there is a lot of value to be brought to the market. Destructive competition um, traditionally, and this is obviously, I, I, you know, I haven't exhausted all the different, uh, uh, you know, differentiation, the constructive differentiation, but destructive uh, differentiation typically comes in two forms and tends to not bode well for any player in the market. 
Um, and it ends up being a little bit of game theory at the end, right? It's mm -hmm. uh, low ball pricing, which is unfortunate. Right. It always happens. And it's typically in, in the unit costs, right? So it's variable fees, uh, fixed fees that we charge as, as, as gateways uh, to the retailers. And then the other is, comes in many different forms, but it could be termed as marketing investments or investments or whatever it is that comes traditionally from, it should have, should be the other way around, <laughs> but somehow, you know, it, it goes from buy now, pay later to marketing initiatives to boost sales in other ways. Right. Um, I'm not a big believer in those, uh, in those two, because I believe in sustainability, right? You want, as a retailer, you would want to work with, and I don't like the term vendor, more a partner yeah sure you'd want to work with a partner who's not you know losing money at every at every transaction and in having to invest um you know hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars to to win an account because you know the value should be in the product okay so that's um interesting the um because what one thing i've seen uh and you may not consider this destru destructive um but it really got my attention is this, these cash back offers to get consumers to become repeat customers. What I've seen that with, uh, I think it's Tabby. And then um, I've seen it sort of in some global players. I mean, that's sort of normal in, in one sense, but I, but it sort of made me think, you know, are, is the, the return business what it should be? If it were, why would these offers be necessary? So I'm wondering if, if you put that in the destructive category or or if that's just part of doing business? I think, I think it's, um, so I can't directly comment on the cashback business because um, we don't do any cashback business. Mm -hmm. uh, but I will say that there is a marketing, there, there is a, so we fall into a, specific, in a very peculiar position between the market and retailers. Mm -hmm. So any value that we're able to drive uh, for merchants um, is powerful. For example, we uh, provide a, a number of our merchants the opportunity to show their discount codes, their promo codes. Mm -hmm. So it's not really a cashback. We're not dealing with any of the cash, but we deal with the promo codes. So right. retailers are investing in, in a cashback. Technically, it's the same, same thing as a cashback, but there's no cash element to it. Right. Um, I guess the cashback is very similar, but I would say it's cumbersome. It's not something that I would I would jump at because of this the simple well the simple uh, cumbersome necessity to deal with people's expectation of cashback. Um, however, w whether it drives traffic or not, I, it probably does. It probably does because people want they want free things, and if they're getting free cash or they're getting free promo promo codes, they're sure. going to use it. <laughs> sure, sure. Cash made me get more attention getting than promo codes. I think even though in a sense, in, in essence, it's the same thing. Um, okay, so so my understanding of the business, kind of what drives it, and I kind of want to get into getting customers to, to do this just once and never come back is probably not great for the business. So you need yeah. you need some some re repeat customers. You uh, you need to be driving higher order values for your partners. Um, what other metrics signal success other than the obvious growth, just growth, but um, what other sort of under the hood KPIs really signal success in this business? So from a merchant perspective or from post-based perspective? Well, I guess, um, well, you, we could do both. I mean, the same. Yeah, because in a way, <laughs> what, what keeps them coming back and what keeps yeah, yeah. them growing and in business? Absolutely. Yeah. I'll talk about the, the, the KPIs or, or the metrics that we use to 
understand the impact, the uplift on, on merchants. Um, and they run through, I mean, they, they may vary from merchant to merchant but because based on priority. But essentially you have two, straight off the bat, you have two major ones, which are conversion rates, right? And AOVs. Uh, conversion rates come from obviously our market. So our customer base, our return customer base using the retailer. And also the, uh, the fact that customer, the same customer that would not have checked out because the price was too high is now able to check out. Mm-hmm. And AOV impact, obviously, is that the hypothetical checkout amount is a lot higher. They're able to put a lot more in their basket and, you know, and, and, and check out with more. Um, so those are the two main metrics. Okay. In addition to that, we look at uh, items per order. So this is another metric that we look at, which is similar to average order value, but it also looks at are they just buying more things or are they buying more expensive things? So it's a, it's a nice way to d- d- dive down a little bit more. Uh, we also look at return rates, so refund slash return rates. And that's important because in a region where logistic costs are enormous and we've had a legacy system or legacy issue with cash and delivery, uh, very, um, let's say, unfortunate to have had COVID globally. Um, but, you know, the silver lining to the storm was that cash and delivery was practically banned for, for a period of time because of the hygiene yeah, and the, right, right. the lack of hygiene, et cetera. And this led, you know, this shifted a lot of people over the line to use online payments. So with that, we're also trying to bring more value into the market and cash on delivery. So our return rates, you know, we, we can, we often reduce turn rates between 15 and 25% across retailers. Okay. All right. So that's how you drive value. Um, and that's yeah. how you, see if it's working right and um absolutely yeah yeah, yeah. so when I, in the time left i want to bring up a couple things that kind of need to be brought up one is um there are some uh growing critiques of the buy now pay later space and that yes it's not interest bearing credit at least in your model um etc but but it is an obligation to a consumer and there, there are some growing concerns that uh, you know maybe consumers you know the fact that they're spending more using this model versus just paying cash up front might suggest that they're taking on a little bit more than maybe they're biting off a little more than they can chew. You've heard these, I'm sure. Um, how do you respond to them? A number of different ways. Uh, first of all, you know, credit as it were, um, as a cash disbursement, uh, industry is regulated, uh, for good reason. And, Obviously, the amounts are very different. When we talk about buy now, pay later, we're talking about $200, $250. You know, at a, at a cap, maybe $300. If you really go far up, maybe $500. But the limits are, are, are a lot, lot lower than what we talk about when we talk about credit limits. So even if we go and dig into um, a credit bureau and uh, the debt burden ratio, is not going to make a huge difference for the vast majority of the population, right? So when we look at it from a consumer perspective, first of all, we're working with our customers, right? We work with our customers. We're not a debt, we're not not a debt collection agency. Um, Customers are not able to check out with multiple installment plans ongoing um, if, if they haven't paid installments off. So they can never get into a situation where they become a revolver. There's nothing like that in buy now, pay later. If like they, if you're going from like platform shopping to you know take on multiple obligations, is that possible? And is that 
How well, you, so if we end up in a situation where you have, you know, 24 different buy now, pay later players, and you can, technically, if they're not all integrated into the same system, then yes, you, you could end up, you know, getting into, into, into a situation. So it's definitely uh, noted and something that, you know, I'm also in conversations with other buy now, pay later founders and CEOs on how to bring it together, because I believe that that's probably the next step is to not only for debt burden, but also for fraud. Right. It's, that it's does seem like a risk it built, especially in a competitive market. You know, yeah. if I'm a consumer, I'm like, okay, the firm won't give me any more or whoever won't give me any more money. I'll just, you know, I'll buy my next pair of shoes on some other platform. Uh, yeah. And at some point, you know, $200 adds up, you know. Well, it multiplies by however many players there are in yeah. the market, right? Yeah. No, it is, a, it is a conversation. And, and really that that is where... I believe it's important to have a constructive conversation with regulators globally on perhaps this this level, but it only becomes a necessity when it's put into the context, right? So if you know people are getting two, three, four credit cards straight off the bat when they get a when they get a when they get a job in a country, then it's sort of an irrelevant uh, conversation. But if um, we are in a situation where there are multiple players and the math doesn't add up, then it's a it's it's a valid conversation. Um, but we also work with our customers. We work with our customers and we ensure that, you know, people are not in situations where they just cannot pay. Uh, we work with them and see how we can support them. Okay. Okay. We'll move on from that. Uh, one last couple more quick things I want to ask. The, the, you've, I wanted to get into a conversation kind of about how COVID drove the business, but that's, the numbers are pretty clear. It, it massively drove the business. Right. Um, my sense is that it's not really, uh, I don't see a COVID letdown because it's e-commerce has grown and it's kind of stayed. I think you're, mm -hmm. the, the risks to the business are much more around the competitive nature of it and some of the issues with consumers, et cetera, as opposed to like a COVID letdown. Is, is that how you see it or do you see it differently? Yeah, absolutely. I think COVID was just the, was the double tailwind uh, to growth. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, we don't have to get into that in any more detail. It's just sort of an obvious point I thought I should at least acknowledge. The other thing I wanted to ask is, is more of an observation of mine that could be wrong. Uh, happy to be proven wrong. My sense is as all of these international players come in, um, we just saw Zip um, finish an acquisition of a business they invested in in South Africa, a company called uh, Payflex, I believe. Um, we've seen the investment in you. It's not an acquisition, but um, we've seen what happened with Spotty, with uh, uh, Checkout.com and, and Tamara. And, you know, obviously Square Afterpay is massive. Um, what I, one thing that occurs to me is, and this may be silly, our businesses, are we going to get sort of not serious businesses starting up to sort of lay themselves in the path of, uh, these big international players with lots of money. Is there, would that even work? And is that a, 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 at least a short-term risk to add unnecessary competition to the market? Do you see that? I mean, does that something to even think about? You know, uh, your question is whether the, there'll be people setting up buy now, pay later simply to get acquired by large international yeah. uh, BNPLs. Look, I think it's, it's very clear at this point, um, the market has a number of existing players and any, I think it's, it's already got to the point where there's going to be M&A, there's going to be a consolidation of the industry and or some companies are going to run out of steam. And so to yeah. set up a company right now, I don't think large players, large global players would be interested in investing and burning 
I, I, I would think that, that that ship has sailed personally, but I've heard this yeah. objection raised yeah. by others or this concern raised by others. Yeah, um, I don't think it's a concern. I mean, and at the end of the day, you know, whether it, from our perspective, whether let's say company X, a global player and buy now, pay later wants to enter the market here, whether they buy out a local player who's got nothing or come in by themselves really doesn't make a difference. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay, that's fair. Um, Final question, and that is, where does this go? And, and I'll, I'll ask sort of a multi-parter on that. For example, um, does, I mean, you have geographic expansion plans you've already outlined. Um, what about on the product side? You know, you, there are niche players, and then there are some more broadly positioned players. Is the, does it evolve into more of a broader solution for consumers or merchants? Does it go just up market in terms of the co average cost? What is what? How does this business evolve going forward to continue its growth? There's so many things uh, in buy now pay later. So many things that are uh, being addressed, but not only in buy now pay later and fintech. So I'm sorry, I'm, I'm taking a step back and looking at the overall you know financial services sector that's being disrupted and challenged on so many different fronts, whether it's uh, savings and wealth management or payments. Uh, credit, and those are three. There are many other uh, verticals within in the banking sector. Uh, three that have, you know, openly been challenged and changed drastically. So, uh, I believe that there is a uh, a confirmation of buy now pay later as an industry here to stay, and and that's a good thing. Not only because we have a buy now pay later company, but it's a good thing for the customers. It's a good thing because it's free for the customers. It's also a good thing because it's actually driving true value for retailer, for retailers. So the the margins that the banking sector were drawing from the credit industry is starting to fizzle out, and that value is now going towards the merchant and towards the customer. Mm -hmm. um, not to say that these big angry banks have been ruling the world. It's not about that. It's just an evolution of the of the financial services sector and an evolution of the banking industry. But, you know, in certain blocks. So when we talk about buy now, pay later, it's really in the credit space. And so to understand what will happen in buy now, pay later and the evolution of buy now, pay later, we have to look at the credit space because that's really what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. uh, what we have done and what we have got today is what some would say, you know, micro lending, short term, uh, focused on specific products. It's really just tapped into a very, very small part of what there is in the, in, in the industry. There is a whole array of different verticals. So, you know, and I mentioned them earlier uh, to tap into. There are a range of different products that will also come out from this. But I also am a firm believer, especially in the Middle East, that we're only tapping into a very, very thin share of what is the monster of retail in the region, which is an omni-channel experience. And that's really the next thing for us. It's how to create an omni-channel experience in really a mall culture. Uh, we have some of the best malls in the region. Oh yeah, you know. no, I've been to Dubai, they're, they're fantastic. <laughs> yeah, and so we, we're not just gonna operate online because we have to do justice to the infrastructure that's between the UAE, Saudi Arabia, and all the other GCC countries with these phenomenal malls and experiences. And people love the experiences at the end of the day. Right. Okay. So in-person retail is, is another area. And, and we're seeing more of it, more companies having an in-store uh, option as well. Okay. Absolutely. 
Yeah. So, so last question, and I sort of meant to ask this earlier, but the the, the afterpay investment with uh, Square coming in, and I mean, I know the acquisition of by Square is not going to close until next year. Uh, yeah. But what? How do you? Re, how does that impact you? I mean, in the short and midterm, and and in the long term, are two different two different things. Um, in the short to midterm, you know, looking at six nine months, however long it closes, it doesn't. I mean, it really doesn't have any impact on us. Uh, we're, you know, extremely excited uh, for the long term, what could happen from, from that acquisition and who our partners could be. Uh, but for the time being, we focus on, 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 our, on, you know, on rolling out in the region, on winning the market and on serving our customers. Okay, well, we'll have to leave it at that. We ran a little long, which is fine. It was a good conversation. Beating podcasts is there's no... Uh, real hard limits. So it's all good. Um, yeah, well, thank you very much for your time. Really appreciate it. Really enjoyed the conversation and uh, learning a little more Likewise. about post pay and, and this industry, which is really exciting. So thanks again. Thanks for having me. Thanks a lot.